Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hi, this is Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast. We are continuing the, I guess we call it the Josh Marshall Podcast in exile. Is that, you know, uh, you know, since we're, since we are continuing to do it remote, um, I, we're, I think at this point we're getting kind of used to it. I, I noticed that, uh, someone on, on Twitter mentioned, uh, after last week's episode that for basically all of the episodes we've done, I've said it was the fourth episode remote. So I've sort of, you know, <laughs> I saw that. you know, time dilation or whatever. And I, I, yeah. I, uh, I, I told this guy, wait, what was it that? Um, uh, you know, I guess it's that we, when we started, we had, I, I thought we had a week off. I thought we didn't do it the first week, but I went back and looked and there actually was an episode that we did right after we started mm. working remote. In any case, um, so that was obviously an error. Uh, we have, uh, well, d- d- David, what are we, what are we, what are we doing this week? So, Josh, we have our first remote guest this week. So, even in even in these remote times here at TPM, you know, we're we're iterating, we're uh, you know, we're innovating, we're just kind of continuing to press forward. So, friend of the show, and of course, TPM reporter Josh Kavensky is joining us from. Somewhere in Brooklyn, I guess, right? Yeah, uh, <laughs> live from Fort Greene. Thank you. For ha- thanks for having me. Not far, not far from me. So it's good to yeah. have you, and good to see you on the Zoom that we are all using, <laughs> and good to hear your voice as well. It's good to be here. So, Josh, before we start, do you want to take care of a little bit of business before we dive into Josh Kavensky's blockbuster story? Yeah. So uh, everybody. Uh, remember, the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. You can order it online at Grady'sColdBrew.com. You can also order it uh, on Amazon.com. Usually we say that that's if you want, like, you know, extra fast delivery. Uh, I think everybody is probably used to now. If you go to order something on Amazon, it often says, like, you know, uh, we have no idea when it's going to arrive or something like that. But in any case, you can order it either way. Uh, it is also available in stores across the country. Uh, obviously, people are doing remote purchases and stuff like that. So probably the best way to get it is to order it online. It's great. We The whole, the whole uh, TPM website is basically powered by it. I was actually talking. I was, I, I was uh, emailing with Grady. A couple days ago, just kind of checking in on on how they're doing because they're yeah, how's he, yeah, how's they're, he doing? you know they're still up and running. Uh, they're located in the Bronx. They're an essential service since they're you know food and beverage production. And he was saying how uh, not surprisingly, you know he he was telling me that that they for years they've been trying to get people to kind of convert people to making it at home, right? And it's so hard. Now, obviously, it's, you know, the, <laughs> the, the number of people who are making it home is just exploded. But he also said, and this is, I think, kind of like an insight into probably what all sorts of small businesses in, in involved in, you know, food, beverages, or whatever around the United States are doing, that that's exploding. But obviously, everything that has to do with uh, markets, 
uh, sales to, you know, businesses and stuff like that, you know, for, for uh, when a business orders coffee that their employees, you know, drink at the office, that's collapsed, right? Because every, because all or most offices are, uh, are closed. So they are, you know, they're, they're, they're uh, marshalling on. Um, so anyway, uh, Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee, it's really great. It's the sponsor of our podcast. And if you're ordering for the first time, you can get a 20% discount with the promo code TPM. So check it out. Yeah, I like that. So while everyone's doing their sourdough starters, maybe start small with a little cold brew at home, DIY cold brew at home. It seems like maybe that's an easier place to start. <laughs> so um, we'll, we'll get into the news of the day. I wanted to talk about, you know, the, the tension between governors and President Trump on reopening the economy. Kate, you've written about the situation in Georgia and also the situation in Wisconsin after the election. But first, uh, Josh Kavinsky, the reason we wanted to have you on was to talk about the story you published last night, which is the effort of couple weeks worth of reporting at least some late nights some weekends uh kind of a sounds like a roller coaster of a reporting ride and this is a story about millions of uh k95 masks that were coming from china and these are obviously the masks that are so in demand for healthcare workers um on the front lines and it's sort of a crazy saga i, I just want to turn it over to you josh if you want to kind of start from the beginning a little bit tell us about this story and and about the the process of, of running it down. Sure. So we started, I think, reporting this out, I want to say April 6th or 7th, really just the first week of April. Um, and the way it started was with a tip we got from a government official who had a lot of visibility into both, you know, how the Trump administration has been trying to bring masks, you know, from China into the U.S. and also a certain amount of visibility into allegations that were floating around really kind of strongly at that point in time around whether or not the Trump administration was using the Defense Production Act to seize um, private shipments of masks that were being imported into the country. Uh, just for listeners, some context, Defense Production Act is a law from the Korean War era that gives the government broad powers in emergency situations and really just any situation that they're making uh, to um, divert supplies that already exist in the private sector or uh, order production of new supplies. So the question that we kind of were looking at was fairly simple. It was, you know, to what extent is this being invoked in ways that haven't been reported? And is there any impropriety on the part of the government in the way that it's being used? Um, and those two questions kind of animated, I think, at the beginning of the reporting. And by the end of it, we were just in a completely different area than we thought we'd end up. What we ended up stumbling upon was this um, company in New Jersey that it's called Global Geeks. Its main business is importing iPhones and smartphones and other kind of consumer electronics from China and reselling them in the US. And what we found was that they had been able to like pivot basically. Uh, whatever contacts they had in China that were allowing them to do that, they were able to use to import huge amounts of uh, KN95 masks. Um, it, it was a difficult claim to verify, but we were able to do it um, partly because it was just, a, it's such an improbable and bizarre link in the chain. Um, and, but because I think other people might have also in the government who might have also been taken aback by the nature of the importer, uh, potentially, um, there was a defense production act order placed on their shipment. Um, so they ended up having to deal with, you know, seven hours with the FBI, with Homeland security, all these different things. Um, and so we ended up being able to do was trace the story of this one shipment 
relying on the emails we got from the government uh, source and from all these other kind of interactions we had that we were able to trace the, the masks, sorry, from their origin in China, being loaded onto the airport in Hong Kong on April 3rd uh, to arriving at Newark Airport, to clearing customs, to being held by customs, to clearing the FDA, to being intercepted by the FBI, and finally making it onwards to who we think the final customer actually was. And who, and was it bound for the Northeast somewhere? Where was, remind us where the final kind of destination was as far as we know. So there's a few, there are a few places it likely went. Um, the most interesting one is Bay State Health. So listeners are probably going to be, might be familiar with that because over the weekend, um, a column written by Bay State's chief physician executive, like basically the chief medical officer, um, wrote, blew up a lot. And because what he described was uh, going to this undisclosed airport, undisclosed location in like the mid-Atlantic, um, all this cloak and dagger stuff, all of it around getting like a shipment of KN95 masks. Um, and what happened was, is he basically on behalf of his hospital, he got like two semi-trailers that were disguised as food transport in order to disguise the masks. And as the masks were being loaded and just as they're about to send the wire transfer to the company, um, the FBI showed up and he had to t- talk his way out of the situation. And then even once they got the masks to the hospital back in Massachusetts, uh, Homeland Security investigations stayed in their tail. And there was a lot of discussion over whether or not um, Homeland Security was going to take the masks and divert them. Um, what And that ended up not happening. But it's kind of key to note, note there that the Homeland Security could really only have been in a position to even ask those questions about potentially taking, taking possession of the masks had they, if, if they had had a Defense Production Act order. And that's something that they really only have the power to do pursuant to a DPA. Um, so that's the most interesting one. Uh, and we kind of were able to connect the dots there because the CEO of Global Geeks, uh, as we were trying to verify this reporting, told us many, many times that Bay State was a very kind of significant client of theirs for this shipment, that it was like uh, you know, a really kind of crucial purchaser of all these masks that they brought in from China and that were briefly held by the government. And do we have any idea why this might have been flagged in the first place? Is it just a company like Global Geeks that imports cell phones like shouldn't necessarily have millions of masks on their hands? Or do you have any sense of kind of how that got triggered in the first place? It's hard to say. Um, there's, and I have to be careful when I say about that aspect of it, but what we can say is that relying on statements from Homeland, from the Department of Health and Human Services, and also just from the emails, um, and also from conversations with Global Geeks itself, there was initially a suspicion on the part of the government, which was later found to be false and correct, that Global Geeks was either hoarding or price gouging on the masks. Um, and the government went to Global Geeks, and went to the, apparently went to Bay States, one of the purchasers, and was able to determine that uh, the masks were at least going to legitimate suppliers. They weren't being resold under the black market for exorbitant rates. Um, I think there's a separate question here about how markets are functioning uh, for needed supplies during coronavirus, during the pandemic. Um, and that's like kind of relevant, but not really. But the answer to that is that there's very limited supply and a lot of demand. So the prices that, you know, a company like 3M would usually charge, which is like a dollar a mask, aren't always going to be applicable. And it's very difficult for people to discern what's a legitimate price and what's not a legitimate price. Isn't there also, Josh, I mean, one of, uh, one of the things as we were as we were reporting on this article and this is something that that i've still been kind of unclear on or up in the air about or i guess it wasn't entirely clear to me whether this this claim of price gouging which as you say was was turned out not to be true was possibly 
always sort of a um, uh, kind of an excuse that they just kind of that the federal government just kind of wanted it and, and, and that they maybe needed to say this to justify what they were doing. Because if we, we know from, uh, I mean, the whole, the significance of this story that you reported is in part because this is not the only example of this. The reason we were so, uh, we thought this story was so important is that this is clearly happening in a lot of other places around the country over over recent weeks. And, and there hasn't been, no one has gotten a detailed reported piece about how these confiscations or attempted confiscations are happening. So in this case, it actually ended up not being confiscated, but we know it ha- these things are happening in a lot of other places. So it's clear that it's not always price, you know, price gouging. So how much is, give, give me a sense of that. How much was your sense like maybe this kind of price gouging thing was, was just kind of a box they needed to check because they wanted the stuff? So it's hard to know because the government isn't communicating with itself well at all right now. I mean, it's just no agency kind of has an idea. It doesn't seem to have a whole or clear picture of what other agencies are doing, which is one of the challenges in reporting this. But what I can say, and what I think like would be in support of what you just like what you just suggested, uh, is that you know the, first, the thing that first tipped us off to this was this email chain that we got from within the government, right? And what the email chain does is it's basically people discussing like this shipment that there's a that there was a Defense Production Act order hold on. Uh, order placed on, um, and you know they're discussing kind of what happened to it, and then there's sort of and then there's sort of like a briefing that's supplied to everybody um, on the chain, so they all kind of know what happened, and that does not mention anything about price gouging or hoarding. All it says is that um, the shipment was held, um, and that Homeland Security Investigations is working with the U.S. Attorney's Office for the District of New Jersey for possible diversion of critical supplies. And that's it. It's just that the the shipment has been deter- has been designated critical supplies, which is a Defense Production Act justification. And then there's you know law enforcement is working on possible diversion, but there's nothing else that's uh, there's no other suggestion. Um, it, the whole story of how either Global Geeks or Bay State or whoever um, talked to the government out of. Uh, confiscating it is fascinating and still really unclear. Um, even like the Andrew Artenstein, the Bay State Health uh, Executive's uh, account in the English Journal of Medicine last week and his subsequent accounts to various media, isn't. it's not entirely clear. Like he just sort of said like, yeah, you know, they were, uh, they, like the FBI just wanted to make sure these were going to a legitimate destination. And once I convinced them that I was a legitimate hospital, then they were happy to let it, let, 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 let it kind of go. Um, Global Geek said something similar that the FBI was just trying to vet the uh, destination of the shipment. And once they realized that it was all legitimate, then they left. And that's entirely possible. But there is a sense that like it, the question of why they were interested and why they went to the length of actually getting the legal machinery in place to take control of the shipment and then kind of backed off the last minute. It's still very weird. And it's part of why we were so skeptical at every stage of the process, because it just didn't make a lot of sense. But it's it just remains kind of unanswered, I think. Right. I mean, I, I think this is, and, and just to be clear to our listeners, this is a suspicion of mine that is sort of, you know, outside the four corners of our of our reporting. And it's partly based on, again, the fact that we know this is happening in a lot of other places. And in a lot of cases, it does get confiscated in cases where it pretty clearly was not price gouging. That, again, it seems to me that... Um, it, the federal government has sort of unleashed the apparatus uh, 
from very, you know, Health and Human Services, FBI, Department of Homeland Security, like we need to get the stuff. And so, you know, they, they, say, they always say that thing about, you know, when you have a hammer, everything's a nail. When you have the confiscating machinery, you find some, you find stuff to confiscate. And so that's kind of, as, as I said, I think we weren't able to, you, you're reporting, this is, this is you know, I, I had only tangential involvement in this. It, it's, it's, it's your reporting. Again, I'm still sort of suspicious that, that price gouging was not always kind of a, you know, kind of the government's cover story. Or just again a box they needed to check as a as a as an accusation to justify what they were doing. And again, just to be clear, again, we were able to confirm that there was no price gouging. So that's that that's clear. Um, and it's also just true that like you can. I mean, in this environment where you know people are selling like KN95s on the street for like twelve bucks, um, and then 3M is officially I, th- I think ninety cents is their retail price. You know, if you're selling them for four or five dollars. That's like in some in, from one perspective, that's like a five hundred percent markup. From a different perspective, you're actually selling only half with, uh, for uh, for half of what the guy in the street is selling, right? So I mean, it, it's completely subjective. The government can kind of say whatever it wants on that. Um, I mean, it did, again, it didn't have to pull it didn't have to pull back the way it did in this case, right? It, it, it could have stayed it could have stayed in its position, or I guess I should say, gone through with like the legal authorities it got under the DPA. But uh, again, that's one of the big mysteries. Is just like how were they able to convince the government not to do that? Yeah. I mean, they, they, did, they did. Yeah. And so Josh K, I I wonder if, you know, to the extent that you're able, can you tell us, I don't know, kind of how you reported this out? Um, you know, obviously it's such a complicated issue and, um, you know, it's hard to get a hold of people and part, you know, most of the people involved in the, these types of stories don't have re- any real incentive to talk. I mean, are you able to just share a little bit about, I don't know, how you were able to piece it together or kind of what those couple weeks of reporting looked like at all? A lot of it was just, uh, I think it was a couple things. One was just repeated conversations with the same people over and over again. Um, and that was, I mean, a huge part of it. it was just going back to people who were directly involved and just seeing if they had any new, any new information day to day, see if the recollections had changed, see if their accounts would happen to change and just trying to monitor that as closely as possible and using whatever information they were able to provide to go to the government and try and have the government confirm various pieces of it. From, from the government, we were able to get uh, some documents and then basically based off of conversations I, was, I had with Global Geeks, um, kind of other people who were tangentially involved, people who were just kind of under, who understood how supply chains work and how they shouldn't work. And then again, based off emails, we were able to go to the government with very specific um, questions and we were able to kind of tease them that we knew enough information that they kind of had to respond to us. And even though it took them a long time, they did eventually get back to us in a way that was able to confirm uh, various portions of the story, like I think beyond reasonable doubt. There was other stuff too that was interesting. You know, because we had like really detailed customs information, we could just put in the FedEx tracking number or like the shipment tracking number for all these different contractors that were like involved in it. So that that way we were able to say like this was loaded at Hong Kong at like 11.54 on April 3rd and it, arrived, and it went to Anchorage because we had the flight numbers so we could track the flight and then it arrived in Newark. So we were able to corroborate 
uh, various elements of like the, just the movement of the, just literally the physical movement of the shipment uh, by using the same tools that anybody who's ordered something on Amazon or FedEx uses to track their own, like their own their own delivery. That's really interesting. So does it look does it kind of look the same as like your you know your Grady's cold brew order or, or your whatever that you that you you get your email shipment confirmation of and stuff? It does, and this is where talking to subject matter experts came in handy because there's separate like platforms if you're doing commercial cargo and especially if it's it's stuff that has to clear customs because then there's all these intermediary steps it has to go through um, and all these different contractors that it might like interact with like it, it gets very complicated very fast there's a lot of terminology so like the, the, the interface is exactly the same but like obviously when I ordered like my sourdough starter off of Amazon <laughs> at the beginning of this pandemic it never had a, there, there, there was nothing saying like it cleared like Customs and Border Protection, I should hope. Right. But yeah. Right. Isn't, isn't there, Josh, let me, let me, one thing I wanted to ask you, and this is, you know, this is, uh, there may be some complexity about answering this because of all the, <laughs> all the, all the weirdness that came up in, in reporting this story. But I think the overall reporting experience confirms something that we had suspected. And that is that the reason there's been so little detailed reporting about this topic of confiscations is that everybody's incentive is to not talk about it and and extreme incentive in, in incentive that the you know the masks are life and death uh, and so if if you're someone who got your shipment of masks confiscated you may be pissed but you really want your masks and so you're not gonna you're you're heavily disincentivized to uh, complain about it publicly, to complain about the federal government's role, um, to you know inadvertently uh, shine a light on the contractor or the distributor, because I know that in in a few other cases that we had looked at, not this story, that the people who had had their stuff confiscated, they wanted to try to get it back, so they're trying to work an angle with the government to get the stuff back. And obviously if that's the case, you don't want to go to the press. Um, and in other cases, maybe you've given up on that, you know, shipment, but you try to get another shipment. And if you've, you know, and if you kind of marked yourself as a troublemaker with the federal government, you're, you're, it's going to be even harder. Or if you're someone who's going to go to the press, maybe, you know, the distributor isn't going to want to help you or something like that. And so give us a sense. I mean, it was this was a one of the reasons this took us a while to 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 get this story published. I mean, I guess we've been on it for like a couple weeks altogether um, that, you know, no one was really eager to talk with us. Yeah, I mean, that was a huge part of it. One thing that just crossed my mind is that, I mean, that language just that they use on this, like critical supplies. Uh, I mean, one of the cases that we were tracking was this Kaiser Permanente case out in California. Yeah. Um, and I remember that we and a bunch of other news outlets got this notification that a lot of doctors, uh, that doctors at the Kaiser Permanente system received saying that, look, you know, we had expected a shipment of sanitary gowns, but that's not coming because the government deemed it critical supplies and diverted it for its own purposes. And that's exactly the same language that the government used on the shipment that we followed, which is interesting because it's, it's, it's DPA language, but it, it does raise these questions. And for sure, I think, you know, the phrase conspiracy of silence, I think is correct. Um, it, so the hospital in this, in this case, supposedly Bay State, they had, I mean, even though we were, I mean, we're pretty sure that they were the final customer because the vendor told us, um, they had zero incentive to speak to us for a bunch of different reasons. Um, the one they cited separately was that they wanted to protect the relationship with the vendor. 
Um, they just didn't want to burn the vendor, which sure. Um, but I mean, these are scarce supplies. You don't want to be the guy, you don't want to be known as the guy who got them necessarily. Um, you also don't want to, you know, aggravate a government that has these powers for sure. Um, and there, there, there's a number of different reasons why I think people are unwilling to talk on the vendor side. I mean, this is a complicated thing, uh, setting up these international supply chains. Um, and if you're the guy who's, who is lucky enough that your, you know, iPhone resale business ended up allowing you to import huge amounts of masks, like that's a great thing. And it's like, you know, and the PR for yourself on that is potentially very positive, but, uh, you don't, to the extent that the government is using law enforcement to try and enforce these things, the risk for you is that you're going to be tarred by association with any kind of enforcement action. And because, you know, and also because there isn't like a formal indictment presented in any of these cases where the government uses the EPA to seize it, uh, if you're the company that like, if, if you're a small company that has zero kind of international reputation, you know, the first stories about you are going to be stories that are kind of built off of whatever happened here. And the first story about you is one that has to do with a, an enforcement action, even if it turns out that it didn't pan out. That's not a great start for your kind of like image, right? So, I mean, right. I'm talking more about the specific case, but there's a million different reasons why, uh, people don't want to talk about this. And I think not least of all, just because it's like, it's just inherently murky. Um, in a lot of these cases, you know, not the one that we wrote about, but other ones that we've heard about, really, I mean, there are just so many steps in a supply chain, particularly if it's international. And a lot of times with the way, the way it happened was that it's really only the actual importer who had the communication with the government. Everybody else who actually purchased the masks, who ends up complaining, just heard some garbled thing from the importer. And the importer then doesn't say anything because they're freaked out because they probably just got visited by the FBI. <laughs> Right. So right. where we got lucky actually here was that we had somebody who had a kind of had a relatively positive experience with the FBI and was willing to talk about it. So, right. Right. Yeah. And, 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 and yeah. just to it, it's uh, one part that is maybe implicitly clear is that this federal government or at least the people in charge of this federal government have a very, a very earned reputation for think, thinking in terms of payback. So this is, you know, th- there's always there's always going to be that fear, but some federal, you know, some administrations would react more like, okay, this was a little, this wasn't handled great. Let's try to make it work. That's not how this administration works. Right. I mean, it's, it's by federal government, clear. I mean Trump administration. Yeah. yeah. What's that? By federal government, I mean Trump administration. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. totally. So, so it's it's uh, and and. It, it, just back to that point you made, and this this is one of the this is one of the things that got us so interested in this topic that there were no, there were a number of cases around the country where either a hospital or a government, local government, state government, basically says our stuff was confiscated, and then reporters say, well, who confiscated it? And they're like, we don't know. Or we were just told, you know, there's there's that there's that scene in Goodfellas where the Joe Pesci character gets 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 killed, and they're just like, he's gone. Don't don't talk about it. You know, it's sort of like this mob kind of language of like it's 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 over. It's over. Forget about it. And and to your point, that's exactly it. Because in a lot of cases, it, it, you're de- the, the the buyer is dealing with a distributor they've never dealt with before. Often the distributor isn't usually involved in medical equipment. They don't know the hospitals or state governments. And the distributor, if they if they had a, an interaction with the federal government, they want that to go away. They don't want to talk about it. So it really, it's, it's just fascinating and weird. Yeah, it is. 
I mean, it, no, it, it's all just so murky and strange. And it's also just like if you're in charge of a hospital chain or a state like public health system and you're trying to get, you know, five million and ninety five masks and the government takes your shipment like a day before it's supposed to arrive. Like that sucks. You want to you want to find a way to claw it back somehow. At the same time, it's like your priority is like making sure people don't die, right? So there's also, I mean, that's just another element is that because it's literally a life or death scenario, uh, life or death situation, I mean, th- people just don't have the time or the energy to like spend all these resources investigating it, uh, which I mean, fortunately is where we come in, but yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, I definitely encourage all of our listeners to read, read Josh Kavinsky's story. It's easy to find on the talkingpointsmemo.com homepage and uh, great work. Really, really appreciate that and, and you explaining it for us. So let's shift gears just a little bit now, talk kind of about kind of some of the other news swirling this week. Um, we've, I guess the conversation around coronavirus in some ways has, has turned from the staggering death tolls and, um, you know, job losses and just the, just the damage that the virus has inflicted on kind of all parts of American life to, um, I don't know, and all of a sudden, like, hurry up and reopen the government kind of thing. So, Kate, you've written about the situation in Georgia most recently, which kind of seems to be one of the marquee states pushing this early reopening. And this is, you know, this comes as President Trump and his administration has, you know, uh, offered new guidelines to states, basically saying as of May 1st, you're kind of like, it's up to you on whether to reopen. And here's sort of some, you know, a framework with which to do so. Uh, Georgia has chosen to reopen things like bowling alleys and hair salons and Mm -hmm. um, is it gyms too? Like Mm -hmm. uh, all that kind of stuff. So tell us sort of what's happening there and, and, and what you found out. Right. So this is kind of in accordance with something we've talked about before, which is that because of Trump's posture on this issue, pushing an open, uh, an early opening of businesses and, you know, society has kind of become this mark of loyalty to Trump. Um, and I think you see that with the Georgia thing, but with these trends at large, Georgia is definitely first off the blocks in this. They're, um, you know, Kemp ordered that they would reopen uh retail, gyms, salons, bowling alleys um, on Friday, which is even before really- the end of right. the month, right? Right, which is um, really a much bigger action earlier than anyone else is taking. And then on Monday, he said that he's following that up with, you know, movie theaters um, are allowed to open and dine-in restaurants and everything. So basically, that that is the outlier. But kind of parsing it state by state, you see that almost uniformly, all the governors who are making any moves to reopen any slice of their economy right now are pretty much all Republicans, um, pretty much all red states. Uh, I think like the one exception to that is the governor of um, Minnesota who's reopening like outdoor golf driving ranges. But, right, and like fishing. Right, yeah, outdoor recreation where you stuff, can space yeah. yourself. Yeah, very Minnesota activities. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but um, yeah, so I mean, and that's the divide right now. And of course you have Kemp leading the gate who's already received a ton of criticism for not issuing his stay-at-home order fast enough to begin with. Um, The state has been relatively, it's in the upper half of um, states that have been pretty hard hit by this. And you actually even had reactions from, you know, Lindsey Graham kind of putting the brakes on it. I mean, because, you know, there's geographic logistic to think, uh, geographical logistics to think about, that there are states that are bordering Georgia that might 
be wishing that they would be entertaining a bit more of a cautious posture right now. So yeah, and then, you know, the other half that divide is that you have a lot of blue state governors who are being very uh, cautious, kind of erring on the side of staying shut down for longer and I guess taking the economic blows over the possible, you know, uh, spike in deaths that would happen if they try to reopen too early. Uh, so those, that's kind of the great divide you have going on right now. And of course, that's being uh, kind of amplified by we've seen protests springing up uh, around the country and you have in some places even uh, Republican legislatures kind of taking the fight to the governors to reopen. And it, it's all it's coming from an understandable place because these are, you know, economic huge blows. I mean, businesses are failing. People are being laid off record numbers of, you know, people applying for unemployment and everything else. But, um, you know, it's just it's a very kind of weird battle where one side is saying, you know, we got to reopen for the economy. And the other half is saying people will die if we do that. So, yeah, that's kind of where things are at right now. One of the things that that, that struck me is, is and you, you mentioned this, Kate, is that you would logically you would expect the first moves for this to be maybe in Utah or one of the Dakotas that, you know, maybe North Dakota or Wyoming, places where it really is very limited and you don't have a lot of big urban areas. You know, that there's a logic to that. But Georgia is actually a pretty hard hit state. Not the most, but but it's 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 a real one. And and it's just it's it's so funny because this is, as you say, you don't have to be crazy to think about how long are we going to do this and, and, and what is the balance of, um, of economic activity and public health. But as you said, it's, it's, it's just become purely partisan. Um, and that, that sort of inevitably uh, makes it kind of partisan on the other side, even though the other side is very grounded in public health realities. That probably now, if some Democratic governor thought, all right, maybe, you know, kind of like you were saying in Minnesota, all right, we can do fishing, we can do this, we can do that. I'm sure there's a sense of like, but I'm not that crazy Republican stuff. I'm not going to like, you know, <laughs> bring bring my machine gun to the state capitol and, and, yeah. and talk about, you know, like all this kind of crazy stuff. It's just, it's another one of these wild things that, that craziness that, that, that President Trump just, you know, brings in his wake in every any controversy he touches. That's the thing. Even um, John Bell Edwards, the governor of uh, Louisiana, where there have been protests too, he pointed out like, oh, just so you know, these guidelines, these stay-at-home orders are recommended and endorsed by President Trump and his entire administration. So it's like the people who are protesting to reopen the state and, you know, the cure is worse than the, the virus are protesting policies that, the president has endorsed basically i mean it's just sort of weird it's a totally backwards upside down world kind of thing I, to an extent is this like widespread or is this really just like 100 people like oh the protests yeah. yeah i mean to some degree like there was uh i think i don't remember there was a protest somewhere yesterday where like the the number of media requests were more or greater than the number of people who actually showed up to protest so you know, to some degree, I think it, people are trying to use it to capture a growing sentiment. You know, the the chafing under the 
forced economic losses that people are taking right now. Um, and also, it's you know, some people are showing up at this protest. Like, I saw um, a video from one at the Pennsylvania State Capitol, and it was, you know, all these guys, you know, uh, AK-47s in hand, you know, on this truck. I saw that and video, yeah. Which is just very alarming, but, you know, some a reporter asked them, you know, why are you here? What are you protesting? And they're like, oh, no, we're independent. We don't, we don't have any stake in this. <laughs> so I think there's some degree of... I don't know. Having a good People time. Yeah. wanting to get out of the house and protest something. But. It, yeah. it, it's one of these things that it is, there was always this thing with President Trump with his policies with Russia, that on the one hand, his actual government, as you know, once he, after he was in office, doing a lot of stuff that was, you know, kind of broadly in the mainstream of American foreign policy on Russia and even even things that were relatively aggressive vis-a-vis Russia. So there's always this thing where, you know, Trump is this kind of, uh, you know, bull in a China shop where he's not he's the nominal owner of the China shop. But the people who's managing the China shop are often doing things that are not really what he's doing. And you have this kind of thing here where. On the one hand, yes, he's endorsed these things, but clearly he's endorsed them kind of under duress because, like, you know, Tony Fauci will say, you know, sit him down in one of these meetings and say, two million people are going to die if you do this. And he kind of says, oh, OK, fine, 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 fine. But he's but, you know, at every at every opportunity, he, he clearly wants to open it up immediately. And, and, and his supporters know that. They kind of know, you know, it even gets to this kind of like it's a, a QAnon thing, right? You know, we know you're, you know, kind of like tap us a signal. Like, you know, like Trump <laughs> is a, a hostage to his own government or something like that. And again, right. again just one of the deep weirdnesses um, of, of Trump that we've, see, we've seen this. We've seen this again and again through more than three years of his presidency, but it's just even more jarring in a, in a situation like this. Yeah, it's kind of like bootstrapping a new Tea Party, but he's their guy's in charge kind of thing. Yeah. Very weird. Yeah. <laughs> That's an understatement. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Um, well, Kate, in the last few minutes we have... Um, Maybe you can share an update for our listeners on another story we're following, which is the the fallout of the in-person voting in Wisconsin. Obviously, we saw long lines. We saw people waiting for hours in the rain, kind of trying their best to social distance. Uh, and then we obviously had the um, iconic image of the Republican Speaker of the State Assembly <laughs> decked out in personal protective equipment yeah. saying, it's all good, go out and vote. <laughs> so right. we have actually some numbers now, right, mm-hmm. that kind of look at, okay, what was the impact of actually having people go out and vote in person and, and the, you know, the spread of the virus. So kind of give us an update on that front. Right. So last night, um, heard from the state DHS that there are 19 people they have confirmed who said they voted in person or they worked the polls at the election. And then more than two days later, tested positive, which is kind of in keeping with um, the current idea about the incubation period, um, which on the lower end is two days. But, um, you know, they were pretty hasty to say we're not, we can't be positive that that's where they became infected. Um, You know, that there's just, there's no way to know, which is kind of interesting because it's a little bit different than what 
the city of Milwaukee said earlier yesterday. They were the first ones to report any numbers, and they said they had seven people who were linked to the election. So, you know, the state seems to be being a little more wishy-washy on the certainty we can have, whereas at least in Milwaukee, they're being a bit more, like, these things are definitely linked to the election. Um, and we saw that Milwaukee was particularly hard hit by the, you know, the various Republican shenanigans to keep this election in person. Usually have 180 polling places. They had five. So a lot of the long lines and people being crammed in happened there. Um, so we're seeing that start to develop. Uh, more comprehensive reports can be expected in the, in the next few days, maybe the next week, um, as you know, more cases develop and as people are able to interview these people, uh, check if they were if they voted in person, see who else they talked to, and you know, make all those connections. Um, but it's interesting because you know, as Wisconsin has kind of been become such the dumpster fire of the pandemic, um, at the same time you've got this going on and you've got like this undisclosed, unsure number of cases that we're going to see develop from the election. You also have the legislature suing the state's top health officials, um, which they did last night because the basically the, you know, the health secretary, she's not she's a designee. She hasn't been confirmed, but um, she extended the stay at home order till May 26th. And they're, you know, kind of yelling this is overreach. This is not in the uh, Department of Health Services powers. Um, look at all the economic damage that Wisconsin is sustaining. This will bring the state to its knees. Um, so, you know, making an argument that's primarily based in uh, what authority the DHS has in this time. But um, so they're also like going to battle with the top health officials, you know, after they battled the governor on the on the election. So it's just the infighting in Wisconsin is kind of you know, very much ongoing, even while we still wait to see what the human fallout is from the last fight in the time of the pandemic. Yeah. It's, 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 All right. it's so weird because it, it, it really does seem, I mean, Wisconsin's politics has been so polarized going back, I mean, maybe going back further, but everybody remembers the big, the protests um, in 2011, when the Repub you know, Republicans came into unified power, they wanted to basically make it a right to work state or I you know, can't remember the exact technicality. So it's this sort of hook and claw thing in Wisconsin has been going on for a long time. But it does seem like now, even in the last two or three days in other states besides Wisconsin, if, if you've got a Democratic governor and, and your Republicans have any kind of toehold in the state legislature, you got to be suing or you got to be trying to pass a law that ends the lockdown or something like this. And, you know, I, I think that that we know from the, you know, the Ebola virus in 2014, 2015, I lose track of when that was. Um, it's not that Republicans are perfectly crazy, uh, perf perfectly crazy, perfectly capable of of freaking out about infectious disease and 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 saying we need to kind of close everything down and do a lot of crazy stuff. So it's just it's just remarkable how partisanized this has become. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And meanwhile, the U.S. has surpassed, what, 40,000 deaths from the coronavirus, I want to say, over the last couple of days. So it's just worth keeping that in the in mind as well. Mm hmm. 
Um, on that happy note, uh, Josh Kavensky, maybe on, we can end on a lighter note. Any sourdough tips for our listeners out there as you're kind of going down this journey yourself? <laughs> so I do have one. Uh, if you're going to let the dough rise before baking, don't follow the instruction that you should refrigerate it. You should never. You should, you should always let it rise uh, at room temperature. Okay. Yeah. Good to know. Yeah, it, it, know. it messed up my focaccia the other day. So. <laughs> now, why is I keep hearing about the sourdough stuff? Yeah. Why is it? I mean, you know, you can make bread besides sourdough bread. Why is everybody doing sourdough? Just because it's sort of like 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 niche sourdough and, and artisanal. <laughs> I think Wait, probably because it's. A, it's good. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, 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 I'm not saying it's not. When, when I was a little kid, uh, my mom made like it, I didn't have like store bought bread until until I was like 12. My mom made all of our bread and just like kind of conventional yeah, bread, not sourdough bread, awesome. right? That that was just a thing. She made yogurt too, right? It was sort of kind of strange upbringing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, so I was curious because it's not like it's not like you can't make, you know, kind of regular loaf bread. Well, too, here's the thing: is every, yeah. yeast is hard to find right now. That's what I was wondering. It's partly the most DIY way you can do it, I think, and it's also that it's hard to find instant yeast in the grocery store to make. You know, everyone is baking like crazy, so <laughs> okay. it's a way that you well, can kind of do your. It's a way you can do your yeah. own make your own yeast kind of right. thing. I think it's sense. also like, it's sense. also like a skill you can acquire if you're at home all the time, even if you're working remotely. Yeah. So right. it's also like right. part of right. exactly. I think our skill is, is is finding ways you can you can eat you can purchase edible food on Amazon. <laughs> well, or to put, or to be more clear, you know, Amazon has like what is it pantry? You know, they have a system mm-hmm. or at least in in major cities, but but those are all. If you try to do that, it, it and you go to pick your time, it'll say like, "Yep, no times for the rest of 2020." Right? So, <laughs> so we've been trying to kind of I, I my. Um, I noticed that my 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 wife had found I there was like mayonnaise in our refrigerator and I looked and it's like written in Polish, right? So these supply <laughs> chains she found somewhere was like you know it's, Josh it's sort of like you're you're the the you know importing PPE right clearly some like uh, some some <laughs> some up, importer <laughs> yeah some importer found like an opportunity to bring in like a a, a big shipment of of mayonnaise from Poland. Um, to address the mayonnaise shortage in in the United States, so <laughs> well, that's my, yeah, that's my little story. Homemade mayonnaise oh. is another trend that I think that's getting popular at the moment. Mm. Oh, there gross! Go. Hate mayonnaise. <laughs> Let it die. <laughs> yeah. All right. All right. Uh, all right. So, like, gotta remind everybody that the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. You can order it online at Grady'sColdBrew.com. You can also order it at Amazon. Uh, it's great stuff. We all drink it. Um, and uh, even, so, even though they're, you know, they're the sponsor, it really, it, it's re- actually really good stuff. And uh, if you haven't ordered it yet, you can get twenty percent off your first order by using the promo code TPM when you order it online. And again, that. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com. Cool. All right. right. Thanks, everyone. Talk to you later. Thanks. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Bye.